We're looking at Isaiah this month and next. It's an application of our time spent in Romans chapters 9 through 11. We were there uh, earlier this year, and uh, Paul quotes Isaiah throughout Romans chapter 9 through 11, so I thought it would be a good in-between series. We'll go back to Romans in May, but here in March and April, we would take a look at this prophet that Paul quotes so much. Really, if you think about the greatest preacher in the Bible, I mean, you think of Jesus, he was a preacher, but um, Isaiah would be a close second. Certainly be the greatest preacher of the Old Testament, as often as Paul and Jesus quote him. And yet, for all his greatness as a preacher, and for 40 years of preaching to the people of Judea, as Isaiah did, for 40 years Isaiah preached bold and eloquent sermons to Judeans who never really listened to him. That was his experience. Two weeks ago, we were in chapter 6, and we, we saw where God told Isaiah, indeed, that will be the case. I am, I am sending you to people who will not heed your call to repentance. They will look but not see. They will hear but not listen. And so judgment will come. And that would take the form of Assyrian conquest. Uh, modern day Assyria is uh, Iran and and, and Syria and, and, and Iraq, that, that uh, conglomerate there made up Assyria of old. The Assyrians would come and they would reduce the Judean nation to stumps. That's the judgment imagery from chapter 6. But that aggressor, Assyria, they would also be reduced to stumps. The difference is they wouldn't recover. And Judah would and that's what we see here now in chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And this is looking out to a later glory of Judah, a glory greater than it was even under David and Solomon. When will that be? Well, ultimately, that will be whenever God is finished reconciling the world to himself, as Paul put it in Romans 11 that we were looking at in January and February. The later glory of Judah will be greater when God is finished reconciling the world to himself, though this, this shoot from the stump of Jesse would be initially rejected by the Judean people and all people, for in their sin we all sinned as, as well. But through this shoot, the stump of Jesse, Jesus, who is pictured here as a ruler all through these 10 verses, he's pictured as a ruler who judges but also rescues from judgment. Uh, you see the judgment, for instance, in verse 4, the second part of verse 4, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. It's not that God has a problem with the earth. He made the earth and delighted in its making. It's that the earth is the inhabitation of the wicked, those who violate his designs, etc. So you see judgment there in verse 4, but then in verse 10, you see saving from judgment. Verse 10, in that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, this is Jesus, of him shall the nations inquire. Haggai says he'll be the desire of the nations, and his resting place shall be glorious. So when does this happen? In fact, uh, Dan didn't, uh, he wasn't asked to read it, but just looking at verses 11 and 12, looking at verse 11, in that day the Lord will extend his hand and yet a second time recover the remnant that remains of his people. Remember Paul in Romans 9 through 11 talking about the remnant that remains by grace? Verse 11 here, from Assyria, from Egypt, from 
Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamat, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations. There's the language again in verse 10. And he will assemble the banished of Israel, verse 12, and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. That's exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Again, this is why we're looking at Isaiah and the gospel according to Isaiah. But when does this happen, all this future stuff? Isaiah living 800 years before the time of Jesus. Well, in Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, you have, when whenever they talk about the future, and prophets mostly talked about the present. Prophets drew upon the past, God's covenant with the people, to address the present. But at times, God would give them a, a vision of the future to come. And in Old Testament prophets, you've got near and far fulfillments of future things. Fulfillments near and far, just similar to how in Jesus we've got a first coming 2,000 years ago and, and we're awaiting his second coming. Jesus at his first coming comes to serve and lay down his life. But even in doing that, he displays the ruling qualities like we have here in Isaiah 11 verses 2 through 5. And then what's in verses 6 through 10 and following looks out farther to his rule established at his second coming. Now, there's a lot about his second coming that's very intriguing to people, such as, you know, will that span of his rule will it be an actual millennium from New Jerusalem? I won't try to get into the details of that other than to say I, I, I do think it looks like that, though I'm not dogmatic on details. No one should be. Uh, it's the future. But it seems the prophets expected some kind of earthly reign of Jesus from a renewed Jerusalem into which the nations would stream. And it seems Paul expected that too as we looked at it in Romans chapters 9 through 11. For our time though in this chapter today, let's key on two things that we know we see in these 10 verses. The focus here in these 10 verses in Isaiah 11 is on Jesus as a ruler. Everything Isaiah preached here found its near and far fulfillment in Jesus. And some of this in Isaiah 11 goes farther still out into Jesus' return and the events that that begins, the renewal of all things. So let's focus everything here under two headings the first I'll give you is the ruling qualities of Jesus. This is uh, roughly verses 1 through 5. And then the quality of Jesus' rule. That's verses 6 through 10. The quality of Jesus' rule, the rule of Jesus' existence in a spiritual sense now over his church. But eventually, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. In Messiah's reign, all fears associated with insecurity, injustices, instabilities, they're all gone. This, this time of, of unprecedented, unparalleled peace and security. Two headings we're going to look at today. The ruling qualities of Jesus and the quality of Jesus' rule. First, the ruling qualities of Jesus. Isaiah 11 is presenting us with a near-far look a near, far, and farther look at Jesus as a ruler. When he comes, his first coming, he has these qualities, but he doesn't come to rule his first time. It's his second time that he comes to rule, and so the qualities he displays in his first coming are there again in his second coming. 
So in verses one through five, we've got Jesus' qualifications to rule the earth, for him to be the desire of all nations. Look at it again. Chapter 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And you've got the same language in Isaiah 53, which will take on Easter Sunday coming. Third Sunday in in April will be in Isaiah 53. And you've got this language of the the shoot from the stump. And this uh, this, this imagery, it's it's hopeful. And, And this is the reason why he doesn't say David. I don't know if you've caught that, but it's, it's interesting that he, comes, he calls it the stump of Jesse. Would you notice that just for a moment here in verse 1? Jesse was David's father, but he was never the king. David was the king. David was the great king. He was the, the, the one the Messiah was promised to come through David's line. So why doesn't Isaiah say in this context, the stump of David? That's what everybody would expect him to say. And the reason he doesn't, because by this time in Judean history, the house of David, the kings, the house of David was self-absorbed, it was petty, it was domineering, it was narcissistic, and the people loved it so. Remember back to chapter 6, verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord seated high and, 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 and exalted, in the, in the, and his robe filled the entire tem- temple, this, this vision that he had, we looked at that two weeks ago. Uzziah, that king from David's line, was a good king for the most part, except he was lousy at the end. He's the king God struck with leprosy for commandeering the temple. We don't have a modern equivalency of this. I won't even try to suggest one. But Uzziah used his position as king to commandeer the worship in the temple and to make it about himself, put himself in a place he was never supposed to be. He only did that once, but it was one time too many, and he died a leper. Calling Jesus a shoot from the stump of Jesse in verse 1, it's taking the house of David down a notch. Salvation would come from David's line, yes, the promise given to David way back in 2 Samuel, it's still good, but not David's current descendants. They were a mess in their pompousness and self-regard. What the people needed was a humble ruler with power. See, that's what a humble ruler does. Uh, Humility in a a ruler is about the use of power. And so what they needed was a, a ruler who would use his power in service to others. And you get that in Jesus. Somebody with the power of God, he being God in human flesh, who uses that power completely and utterly in self-sacrificial service to others. They needed one whom the Spirit of the Lord filled. And so you get it in verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, meaning taking the Lord absolutely seriously. I I read to you Isaiah 61 a couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 6. It bears repeating. Listen to these verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, chapter 61 of Isaiah, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, 
to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, something out of the stump, an oak of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus read that very passage from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue. You remember the gospels record this for us. And he applied it to himself. And here in chapter 11, you get the same language as in Isaiah 61 that Jesus applied to himself. Here in chapter 11, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of the Lord is empowering a ruler who would not think first and always of himself, but a ruler empowered by God to use his power for others' benefit. That's the difference between a, a ruler God raises up for the blessing of a people and the ruler God raises up for the judgment of a people. Is how that ruler understands his use of power. Under Jesus' rule, there is nothing to run from and there is a lot to run to. I get that way of putting it from an old 6th century document called St. Benedict's Rule. It was uh, put together by Benedict as a guide for the abbots over monasteries. That's not familiar with monasteries. Abbots uh, were the leaders of monasteries, sort of the pastor-in-chief, if you will. And there were a lot of abuses going on uh, in those early centuries. And Benedict writes his rule, and it's the guideline for what uh, abbots are supposed to, how they're supposed to treat the monks. Here's what he said. This is a 6th century document. Once in office, the abbot must constantly keep in mind the nature of the burden he has received and remember to whom he will have to give an account of his stewardship. Let him recognize that his goal must be profit for the monks, not preeminence for himself. He ought, therefore, to be learned in divine law so that he has a treasury of knowledge from which he can bring out what is new and what is old. In fact, every line in this rule is, is a biblical illusion. Illusion, not illusion. He must be chaste, temperate, and merciful. He should always let mercy triumph over judgment so that he too may win mercy. He must hate faults but love the brothers. He must so arrange everything that the strong have something to yearn for and the weak nothing to run from. See, that, that's beautifully put, but it's, it's Isaiah-ish. The weak nothing to run from, the strong something to yearn for. Jesus, as Isaiah saw him 800 years prior to his life, as he saw him from afar, Jesus would give the strong something to yearn for and the weak nothing to run from. Who are the strong? The strong are, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They find their fill in Jesus. And, and the weak are those who, who don't have as much hunger and thirst or spend it on other things. But they find in Jesus more than they are looking for. In fact, the way that Jesus would regard the poor and the meek, well, look at uh, verse 4 again. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor. Now, the, who are the poor? The poor are those who can be taken advantage of. Uh, biblically, if you were poor, you, you had no recourse. You could be taken advantage of and you could do nothing about it. Verse 4, going on, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Who were the meek? The meek were those who had deflated expectations. They didn't... They didn't uh, grasp at a lot because uh, they didn't think there was a lot there to grasp about. I've been reading uh, an author named uh, Harrison Scott Key. He's a humorist 
He was born in Memphis. He lives in Savannah. He wrote a memoir about his dad, which, which kept me company as I've been back and forth from Memphis to Savannah to, to say goodbye to my dad. And by the way, for all of you who've sent cards and condolences, thank you very much. That's been very meaningful, and we felt very loved through this. And I, and I expected no less from you, but I'm very grateful to you for uh, all the ways that you've shown love and care to, to me and my family in my father's death. I read this memoir that Key wrote about his uh, dad. It was, it was, it was good accompaniment as, as I was dealing and processing with all the emotions you do. And Harrison Scott Key wrote a, an online article back in um, January uh, in a, uh, uh, online called uh, The Confessions of a Bad Christian. Again, he's a humorist. Here's his words. I'm ashamed that I find it hard to hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus said I should. I envy people who cultivate informed nuanced positions of righteous anger. I, I barely have time to mow my grass. I stand with a lawnmower and I push it after which I hunger and thirst for food and water. If I find matters of social justice so boring, why do I persist in believing in a God who showed the greatest compassion for the downcast? Fair question, pray for me. It will have to be you who does the praying. I start in praying about a friend's fragile marriage and in a second or two, I'm wondering why Amazon makes it so difficult to return gifts. And some of you appreciate the humor in that, and you can identify. But some of you, because we have a pretty eclectic church, that frustrates you hearing that. Oh, you want to hear from the strong Christian. I wish Cole quoted from more strong Christians, you know. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness, people who have it together in Christ, they make you feel more secure. But others of you hear that and you go, man, I like that guy. I, I could write a Confessions of a Bad Christian column too. And those of you for whom that's true, those of you who, who feel uh, weak compared to other Christians, maybe feel like you never quite uh, measure up, don't you know, even though you might consider yourself a bad Christian, don't you know that you really do love Jesus? I bet you do. And you do because you find in Jesus nothing to run from and so much to run to and long for. And, and the same for the strong ones, uh, those among us who have the, the washboard theological abs, you know. The beauty of Jesus as a ruler is that he compels the strong's allegiance while not chasing away the weak in their ambivalence. I love the way Benedict put it in the early 6th century, the strong, something to yearn from, the, the weak uh, not, something to yearn for, the strong, the weak, nothing to run from. I, I love that even though it's too much to ask ultimately for mere human leaders and rulers, we lose patience. Jesus never does. As good as any leader can be, none of us can be anybody's savior. None of us fit that profile on our best days, and our best days are not that far removed from our worst. To quote from Harrison Scott Key's Bad Christian article once more, because he quotes some great, he gives some great Christian insight here. He says, I am grateful to God for that enduring awareness of my tendency to forget I am no God, not even close, which is what allows me, if not to do good in every moment for the right end, at least to spot the good from far off and pray for the strength to walk in that direction. If there's one thing my long internship at Jesus Enterprises LLC has taught me, 
It's that I should be much more watchful of what's inside me than what's inside you. God, give us more bad Christians if that's what bad Christians know. That I would be more watchful of what's inside me than what's inside you. That'll preach. Two weeks ago, when we were in Isaiah 6, I drew a distinction that I want to revisit for a moment in service to where we're going in Isaiah 11, a distinction between the post-Christian city and the cultural Christian city. Remember that? The post-Christian city, you find a lot of confusion about life. You, you think on the coasts. The West Coast and the East Coast are sort of the, the bastions of our, of our post-Christian uh, uh, idealism and ideology. And, and, and in those cities, often you find a lot of confusion about life because those are places where the Word of God, the way of God, the will of God has, has for the most part, uh, been, been purposely left out, uh, chased out, uh, abandoned, marginalized, whatever. Confusion, even chaos, will result from that. But in culturally Christian cities, like our own here in Memphis, there's a lot of cynicism about life. So in a post-Christian city, you get all this confusion about life. I'm not sure what to do, how to live. But in a culturally Christian city like Memphis, you get all this cynicism about life that often stems from disappointment with the church, that the church has all this root structure around us, but the impact of a stump when it comes to the ways and means whereby Jesus' followers actually live. And so in cultural Christianity, there's a lot of fallout from the church, or there's a, a lot of watering down in the church. And, and, and especially uh, the younger generations will conclude they don't want the facade anymore and, and they leave the church. But a lot of them will, who do will say, but you know, there's something about Jesus I miss. I miss Jesus. And Jesus is very much present to his church, which we're grateful for. He doesn't leave. Malcolm Muggeridge, the old British journalist, said when God looks at the world it is disappointment without end weighed against inexhaustible love. When God looks at the world that he made and he delighted in, it is disappointment without end weighed against inexhaustible love. Jesus never gets so disappointed with his church that his inexhaustible love for us is extinguished. Never. He never goes away from the people he's redeemed. In fact, Jesus himself said, and said this with full knowledge of what his church would be, Still, he said it would be hard, if not impossible, to have and to hold him and not be part of his bride in local expression, which is the church. And so, a churchman, I remain, as do you. But people will leave the church. They will say they're done. They're out. What does it matter, really? Why bother with church? But then a lot of them will say, I miss Jesus. I'm missing something of Jesus. And why? Well, because with Jesus, look at all that you get. Verse 3, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That means he'll take everything God says with, with utter seriousness. And yet it's, it's imminently approachable. He, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. He never goes with hearsay. He doesn't respond to the tattletale. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, verse 4, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Those with low expectations, they're, 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 what they find in him is incredible. 
And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Those who are guilty of the great wrongs will be held accountable. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That's undergarment. Not being crude, it's just saying that that what you see on the outside and, and what you don't see underneath, it's all right. It's all pure. It's all good. Through and through. What you see of him and what you can't see of him, his visible attributes, his invisible attributes, it all works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. You will miss a God like that. And the Lord being like he is, as he reveals himself here through Isaiah, I don't know why he puts up with we who are so naturally not like this. But I think I know this. That at the end of all things, when he is reigning over all as Isaiah previews this, because Jesus alone is eminently qualified to do so, somehow his putting up with us, and it's really more than that, his loving us with a love inexhaustible and more resilient than our cynicism, somehow in the end, all the mess and the frustration and the, the disappointments adds more glory to his reign than there would otherwise be. This takes us to the second heading now, the the quality of Jesus' rule, which is yet to be established, his rule over all. But what we see in verses 6 through 10 is what it will be like when his rule is established. That it's a time of unimaginable peace and security that will not end. Right now the church experiences it, uh, a taste of it. It's like a Costco sample we get, but we don't get the full banquet. Yet, in Messiah's reign, once his kingdom comes in fullness, which we're to pray for, what is it he told us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Messiah's reign, once his kingdom comes in fullness, all fears associated with insecurity, injustices, instabilities, they're all gone. Think this out with me, just looking at the, at the text now, verse 6 It's in knowing, isn't it in knowing the fierceness of the wolf that all he wants to do is, in a fallen world, all he wants to do is eat lambs? Somehow our knowing this and being so weary of nature, red and tooth and claw, somehow knowing this and experience as we do adds greater glory to Jesus' reign of peace when it's finally established. Even wolves then will no longer instinctually want to eat lambs. Their instincts will be glorified. The dynamics, even in the animal kingdom, change. Look at it, verse 6, same with the leopard and the goat. Crawling children, like my little grandson Huffman, will be able to handle a cotton mouth and a copperhead without us even passing out at the thought of doing such a thing. Tell you what, if a snake ever got near my uh, grandson, I'll commit atrocities on that snake. I'd chop it up in little pieces and send it all over the U.S., you know. I don't like snakes anyway. The progression of this passage, all 10 verses, look at it. Verse 1, verse 10, you've got a progression. What's the progression in chapter 11 here? From Jesus' qualifications to rule to then his performance as a ruler to the results of his rule, which is ultimate peace and security and justice. Creation is groaning. Remember that from Romans 8? We know this. 
Creation is groaning. What's, what's to be done about it? Take it out back and shoot it? Put it out of its misery? Or put creation into a, a transformative purification, purifying process. The beautiful reign of creation's only rightful rule. That's what creation is groaning for. The vision Isaiah preached is the groaning of creation swallowed whole. This is what you get in verses 6 through 10. The groaning of creation swallowed whole by the beauty and peace and security and justice when Jesus reigns in fullness. Right now he reigns as church. But his church is still hampered by sin. That will not always be. That's what glorification is. It's our freedom from sin. Finally human without all the limitations of sin. I mean, the beauty of what is to come, it's quite stunning. You're, you're meant to read this and be moved. I told you Isaiah was a great preacher. Can you imagine listening to sermons like this and not listening? Can you imagine listening to sermons like this and, and not heeding the call of, of someone like Isaiah? It, it didn't happen. We're meant to be moved by the beauty of every aspect, not just of Jesus' person, but the person who will reign, his future rule, its character and quality, because the time it happens, this rule, when it's established, the world has had so much fill of its ugliness. In Henry James' words, life is a battle. On this point, optimists and pessimists agree. Evil is insolent and strong, beauty enchanting but rare, goodness very apt to be weak, folly very apt to be defiant, wickedness to carry the day, imbeciles to be in very great places, people of sense and small, and mankind generally unhappy. Are we having fun yet? I'm not saying everything is terrible, but everything is limited for now. Sin is the crack in everything. Creation is groaning, but this need not make us cynical. Cynical is the wrong response. Cynical is the, tragical, is the tragic response. What this is supposed to do is make us hopeful. Hopeful for the king in residence on his holy mountain. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Somehow at the end of all things, what does that mean? Somehow at the end of all things, our knowing the hurts and destructions we know the world over adds more glory to life in his kingdom than there otherwise would be and put a period after that, full stop. Because anything that follows that is, is speculative. Don't try to speculate why it has to be the way it is, the world in its fallenness, and end up making God the author of evil or that the fall must have been his idea because none of that is true. We live with the ultimate limitation of not knowing ultimately his reasons why. All we know is that God has done something definitive about the world as it is, in it as it is, and whatever his reasons are, in Jesus we get gifted to us what the world is gnawing its hands off every day to grasp. And that's life and love that lasts, peace and security and glory that lasts. You don't find that just anywhere. You only find it one place, in relationship with God through his Son, by his Spirit. I hope this stokes something in you. If you love him, it does. 
Because to love Jesus is to love his appearing and to long for it. Only the Lord Jesus is sufficient enough for strong and weak both. Jesus is the one who gives the strong something to yearn for and the weak nothing to run from. He presented himself to us in the prophets as the love behind every other love we go searching for. The peace behind every peace that you only enjoy fleetingly and then something ruins it. The glory behind every glory that tarnishes, the security behind all our alarm systems and five-star crash ratings and health-conscious diet, for we all want to think we can secure ourselves if we just live in the right place, shelter our kids, and be smart consumers. But the earth, as you and I experience it right now, is not yet full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as deep as oceans. That seventh angel in that crazy book of Revelation who blows the trumpet in Revelation 11 and announces, now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. That is still ahead of us. For now we see stumps. Some of our hopes and longings get mowed down like clear cutting. But that trains our hopes and longings for something greater, something nobler, something newer. We're supposed to groan. We're supposed to develop that sense that this is on the best day, still not the best that it can be. We can only access the best through reconciliation with the Savior so we don't have to face him as the judge. He took our judgment himself at his first coming so we could know his reign in glory at his second as those who've been looking for it all our lives, those who have been running toward him, not away from him all along the way. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time to look into your word and we ask that you would take these things we've seen, these far fulfillments still to come, and that you would so work in us that our longings, our desires begin to change that our longings and desires are redirected and that we can come to say with the psalmist, whom have we in heaven but you? And earth has nothing we desire beside you. Earth has many things we desire, Lord. But build us in such a way that we have one passion of life and that is to see the Lord enthroned and to see creation renewed and to see the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and to experience a life that was intended all along from the beginning. Lord, we don't understand why all this has to unfold like it does, but we trust you that somehow, some way, when it does, when we're home with you, that we can, uh, we can see then that somehow in all the ebbs and flows and stymieing and, and all of it, that there was a greater purpose we could not have grasped even if you'd told us and that somehow, some way, greater glory accrues to you through the frustrations and the hurts and the problems that are here. That's all we know to do, Lord. Otherwise, we drown in our cynicism. And I pray that you would liberate us from that, any of us who are battling that today. 
that we would see that you are good. You are good to the strong. You are good to the weak. You are accessible to all because of your goodness. We thank you most of all for your grace. Lord Jesus, we pray you will come and do these things that you have promised through your prophets long ago and that we still await your coming today. Thank you for a sure promise and all the ways you keep us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.